How are we doing? Cherish doing good? All right, make sure you got your books here. It's very, very important that you've got them. Uh, you can turn over to whatever page they said uh, where the notes are. Page 20-something, 5 maybe. 25, yeah, 25. But also, part of the reason it's important for you to have this book in your hand is just in case you weren't here last week or in case you didn't watch it online four times to memorize everything we talked about, which I know is like six of you in here. Uh, it, it reminds us of everything that God is doing in us and through us and to us. And so if you're like, what in the world is this before all things? We are in week two of a five-week teaching series called Before All Things, and it's really rooted in the fundamental, uh, really like the foundation of the gospel, and that is the preeminence of Christ. And, and a part of what we're doing as a church in declaring that he is before all things, that fleshes itself out in our experience, in four incredible opportunities, and they're right here. I want to just remind you of what God is calling us to do as a church. The first one is this, is that in this Before All Things generosity initiative, it's primarily about discipleship, that our number one goal is 100% participation. And that begins even in these services. That means every single person needs to get out their book. That includes you men, too. I know you think you're awesome. You're not that awesome. Unfold your arms. Get out your book. Open it up. You know what I'm saying? And so follow along here with us. And, and the, the number one thing in this generosity initiative for us is that we're going to continue to cultivate ministry. Maybe you've been a part of a church that's done like a building fund in the past, and the problem with that, the unintended consequences of building funds, is that everybody gets excited about the building and sometimes can forget the very mission. So the number one thing in what we are trying to do over the next two years is to continue to be a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so if you look on page nine, you'll see some of the things that God has already done amongst us here at 1122. And, and God's grace on our ministry in the past is evidence that more grace is to come. The Bible says that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, and we believe that God is just getting started. One of the craziest numbers in this whole book is not the dollar amounts listed, but on page 10 is this, that 3,000 people have surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ since the day that we opened. There's nothing like moderate applause to celebrate 3,000 lives being changed. I know some of you freak out, like, are we supposed to clap? We didn't clap in my church. All right, so it's just amazing. The last time I've heard of that happening was Pentecost, right, when, when God saved 3,000 on that day. And so that's the number one thing that we're into is to continue to do the ministry that God has called us to do. And then another opportunity that God has called us to is this time for us to put down some roots. We're going to make this house a home. God has done a lot of ministry right here in this old Walmart, and we're going to purchase the entire 125,000 square feet in what used to be a Walmart. And it's an incredible picture of the gospel because a bunch, yeah, all right, go Walmart. Um, it is a picture of the gospel, man. Five years ago, four years ago, this place was pretty terrible. God's made it really valuable. And that's happened over 3,000 times in 3,000 lives since we moved into this joint. And think about this for a second. Seven years ago, on a Sunday morning, right in the spot that you were sitting, somebody was standing there buying some junk like diapers or dog food or something like that. Do you understand? In fact, in this section right here, I've told you this before, this is ladies' accessories. <laughs> I had to ask Gretchen to make sure that wasn't underwear and stuff because we'd move the pulpit over there a little bit. But it's just junk. It's just junk. And insecure people were buying junk to impress people that they didn't know. And honestly, how impressive could it be if you're buying your ladies' accessories right here at the pulpit? And now it is a place where life-giving gospel goes out. And so it's time for us to put down some roots 
uh, and make this place a home. Not only that, it's time for us to sow gospel seeds and, or, or plant, plant new gospel communities all around Jacksonville and, and really eventually to the ends of the earth. But it's going to start on January 10th in Bay Meadows with Pastor Ryan Stone as our Bay Meadows location pastor, all right? Sweet. Got some Stone fans, me too. And here's why. Some of you folks that live in that, in that area, look, the church is coming home with you so that you can, you can live on mission in your neighborhood, and there would be an expression of 1122, a gospel-centered community, right there in your own backyard. Because as God continues to bring people and people and people, we do not want um, our, our space, and we don't want geography to be a limiting factor. You see, because if you do go back to the book of Acts, and on day one of the very first church, 3,000 people show up and get saved. They went from zero to 3,000 in, in one service. So if you don't big, like big churches, you wouldn't like the Bible churches at all. And not only that, by the time, like three chapters later, another 5,000 people get saved, and the Bible says that uh, God was adding to their numbers daily. So you'll find out in the book of Acts, uh, the very first church was a mega church, multi-site church. That occasionally they would meet together in, in the buildings that were big enough, but they met in house to house all over the city, and so that's basically what we are doing. As long as God continues to draw people unto himself through 1122, then we're going to put the church in your neighborhood, wherever you live, all around the city. And then lastly, we're going to sow gospel seeds to the very ends of the earth and right here in Jacksonville. That means over the next two years, check this out, we're going to plant 100 gospel-centered churches around the world, and that's a big deal, amen? Because no matter what the problem is, in a certain society or a certain community, the answer is the gospel, and the gospel is spread through the gospel-centered churches. And so we're raising up um, over a, a hundred pastors and families right now to plant these churches. In fact, Pastor uh, Britt and I were just there this past week in, in uh, Brazil working on some of that, and so we think it's incredible. C.T. Studd, this old dead missionary, he used to say this, the light that shines farthest shines brightest at home, and that's important for us too. Because we want the light of the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. But we also know that we have been planted here in Jacksonville. Not to just be blessed, but to be a blessing right here in our own city. And I don't know about you, I love our city. I love this place. I mean, I love the fact that I get to raise my family here. And every time I drive back into town and see our skyline, I just think, I love what God is doing in this place. And so we want to be a blessing right here in this place. Not just Beach in San Pablo, but for our, our entire city. And so we're partnering with a whole bunch of people right here in the city, some gospel-centered, you know, church-based kind of organizations, and then some people that, that you might want to even scratch your hand, like, like Duval County School System and JSO and some folks like that, that are really all for the same thing, all for the betterment of our city. And we're partnering um, to create some jobs. And here's why. I don't think at the end of our two-year initiative that, that we will necessarily move the needle on unemployment in Jacksonville, but here's what I know. There'll be a couple of dozen families, and the, tra the trajectory of their family for generations to come will be different because their great-grandmother and grandfather got a job in 2016 through the ministry of the Church of 1122. Amen? Amen. So that's what you have walked into. And so it's a really, really big deal. And so last week, the foundation of the whole deal is not about 1122. It's definitely not about me. It's all about Jesus, that he is before all things. And the number one goal in, in this generosity initiative is that you, individually, that you would go before the Lord and ask that fundamental question, 
God, are you really before all things in my life or have some things kind of crept their way up and gotten in the way of you being in first place in my life? Because the reality is this, regardless of how you orient the rest of your life, if Jesus is not first, then your whole life is out of order. That's why, that's why you don't get a lot of sermons here on, hey, here's four ways to be a better version of you. No, the message of the gospel is not God is good, you are bad, try harder, see you next week. <clears throat> Wrong answer. A bunch of us around here grew up that way, and it's exhausting and frustrating. The message of the gospel is that you and I are dead in our trespasses, and then God, because he is first, and because he loved us first, and because he went first, that he came and rescued us, and as a response of that rescuing, then we respond by putting him first in our lives. The way we said it last week was this, is that we bring to God our first and our best because God first loved us by giving us his best. And so in the very back of your book, there's a commitment card. And don't get nervous, all right? We're only on week two. You're not ready for this yet. Don't worry about it. I'm going to teach you a lot more in the next three weeks, all right? And what I want you to do over the next few weeks is I want you to have this commitment card in a place where you can see it where you can be praying for us as we are praying for you, that you could specifically be praying for me and my family and the elders and the staff as, as we do what God has called us to do. And a part of the reason that we're doing this is on, check this out, the Commitment Sunday for us as a church is on November the 22nd, on 11-22, which is pretty cool, right? That almighty sovereign God worked that out for us, dumbest name in church history, just happens to be 11-22 day, and that's the day we're going to gather together and say... All right, Lord, this is what it looks like in regards to our finances. Now, that's just one little piece of this entire journey that we're going to be on. But, Lord, this is what it looks like for us to say that you are before all things. And so, if you've got your Bibles, if you've got like a regular Bible, uh, open it up. Go to Matthew chapter 24 and 25 or open up in your book to uh, page 25. And so, we're going we're gonna to keep going here in week two of this teaching series what we're going to talk about today is this, about middle management. Middle management. Because the reality is, is that you are in management uh, from a kingly perspective. So, in Matthew chapter 24, I've got to start here. Because um, by the time we get to the parable that we're going to camp out on, if you don't understand the question that Jesus is answering, you'll miss the whole point of the parable. In Matthew chapter 24, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, Hey, boys, he's talking to the disciples. Look at the temple. That thing, we're going to knock it down. That's going to be back in three days. And, and they're all freaking out. It took them years and years and years to build. And they're like, how in the heck is that going to happen? And now, post-resurrection, we know that Jesus isn't talking about the building. He's talking about his body, that he's going to go down across three days later, come back from the grave. The, the disciples are confused, looking at him like you're looking at me, all confused. And then they ask him this in 24 to 3. They say, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's Jesus, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? In other words, the disciples come up and they're like, okay, Jesus. So you keep talking about your return. What's the end of the world going to be like? Because, uh, you know, that's what everybody has that kind of question at some point. Essentially, they're saying, look, we've seen the Left Behind movies and, you know, we don't know. Is that how it goes or does it go a different way? Would you please tell us what the end of the world is like? And so when I was a student pastor for 15 years, the, the questions I got the most is this, um, Pastor, what, what is the end of the world going to be like? Can you teach us about sex, and is there sex at the end of the world? Those are the questions that we got, okay? So, the disciples handle one of these questions, what's it going to be like? Now, all of chapter 24 
all of chapter 24, this is important, Jesus starts answering them in a very direct way. And he talks about things like the abomination of desolation and signs of the ends of times and all of this sort of stuff. And as he's talking through that, I think the disciples are looking at him like I would look at him and be like, what are you talking about? I don't understand. And so some of you in the room, you guys are really, really into kind of the end times prophecy stuff. And if that's you, God bless your ministry. All right? I am really glad for you, and you guys should huddle together and talk about that a lot. But I don't know about the rest of you. My own personal take is this. The people that like to talk about the end of the times the most is the people that I like to spend the least amount of my time with. You know what I mean? So that's just me. So then, and here's what's really, really key. By the time you get to about verse 36, after Jesus talks about the, the coming of the Son of Man and the abomination of desolation and all this stuff that just make people scratch their heads, then he says this, but understand... Nobody knows when I'm coming back. Nobody. The angels don't know. Even the Son of Man does not know the day or the hour. So if you think you've got it figured out, you're wrong, is what he's saying. And then Jesus goes into chapter 25, and he, and he wants to make sure that nobody misses the point here. So he shares three parables back to back to back. As you were doing Bible study for the rest of your days, if Jesus ever repeats himself three times in a row, or if the Lord ever repeats himself, the very one that spoke into existence everything that is, and he decides, you know what, let me say that again. It's really, really important. And Jesus had a habit of, uh, if there was a really important point that he would repeat himself a few times, like around Luke chapter 15, when he was trying to explain who he was and what the gospel is, he shares three very famous parables back to back to back. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, or we call it the prodigal son. And the reason, it's like the same thing. Don't miss this, don't miss this, don't miss this. Over and over and over. So chapter 25, he's going to share three parables back to back to back. But remember, the question that he's answering is, what's it going to be like at the end of times? And so I don't have time to go through all the parables. We're just going to camp out on the second one. But here's what he's teaching. The first one is called the parable of the virgins. You can read it for yourself. It doesn't mean what you think it means there, single guys. All right, it means something else. But, but essentially the point is don't miss the party. Don't miss the party. Surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ before he returns so that you get invited to the eternal party. And whatever you do, regardless of the day or the hour when it happens, do not miss the invite to the party and surrender to Jesus now. That's, that's parable number one. And then, after you meet Jesus as your Lord and Savior in parable one, it will change everything about you, the way you live, in parables two and three. And the second parable that we're going to hang out, the parable of the talents, is this. Don't waste your time or money. Don't waste what God has given you because he's coming back and he will hold you accountable. And then the third one is the parable of the sheep and goats. And it basically says, if Jesus is your Lord, then what breaks his heart ought to break our heart. So we should do unto the least of these. And whatever we do unto the least of these, we've done unto him. That's why we as a church go on mission trips and plant churches all over the world and sponsor compassion kids and do all of those sort of things. Not so that God will love us, but as evidence that we know that he does. And so where we're going to hang out is on that second parable. And again, don't forget, what Jesus is talking about here is he's sharing parables that give us an eternal perspective on what it's going to be like at his return. So Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. He says, for it, and this is, here's what the end of the world is going to be like. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, here's something that no one's going to be confused about in this parable. 
Everybody understands that the servants received all of, the, all of their blessing from the master. I'll just tell you this. If you and I could just grab onto that concept, it would fundamentally change the way we see all of our finances. If every single one of us understood that every single thing that we have is on loan from God, it would change everything. See, because a lot of us think it's ours. It ain't yours. Guess what? One day, you're going to be gone. Your stuff's still going to be here. I tell you, your kids are going to go through your stuff and be like, look what mama wore, and drop it off at Hope's Closet. That's where it's going. Do you understand? When J.D. Rockefeller died, do you know how much money he left? All of it. <laughs> Same amount that you are. All. 100%. That's just true. And so nobody here uh, misunderstands in this parable that it all came from the master. Verse 15. To one, he gave five talents. This would be over a million dollars. This is buku dollars, Okay. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. So here's here's just something true. Uh, Fairness is not a biblical value. It's not. Fairness is not a biblical value. Fairness ended at the Garden of Eden. These people were were giving according to their ability. There are no participation trophies in the Bible. That's what this means. Do you understand? And, And here's the reality. Globally speaking... Globally speaking, financially, you're a five-talent family. If you got to decide what kind of clothes you wanted to wear today, if you got to pick which vehicle you would drive here in, I mean, there may be a few of you that aren't five-talent people in the room, and you might have some serious needs. You should put it on the needs board. We want to be a church that helps you. But the large majority of us are five. God has blessed us like crazy, even just in living in this country and being able to live in this city. You see, this last week, literally on last Sunday, as soon as I finished preaching, I ran to the airport and hopped a plane, Pastor Britt and I, and we went down to Rio because we're going to plant a bunch of churches in Rio in, in connection with Acts 29, the network of churches that we are a part of, and with Compassion International, and it's a really beautiful church planting model that's going super well, and we've done it before, and we're doing it again, and it's pretty awesome, and, and it's part of our 100 churches that we're planting, and so we were down there training about, I don't know, about 150 church planters. We, we trained for a couple of days, and then we met with a smaller group of church planters, and we, we worked with them for a day, and then um, on our way to the airport, Jay, uh, Jay Bowman, who's a partner of ours down in Rio doing an amazing work, he took us to this place and said, man, you got to see this place that's in the favela or in a slum in Brazil. It's called Crackland. That's what they call it, Crackland. And sure enough, we walked into Crackland, and um, I've never seen anything like it. I really haven't. I've been in slums all over the place, and I figured out why they call it Crackland, and we walk around this corner, and there are all the drug dealers sitting at at this corner on the street, and they have like like fold-out card tables all in front of them with just piles of crack on the tables. We have one. I'm walking in, and I'm like, whoa, Right? And there I am holding like some peanut butter and jelly and some two-liter cola, right, you know? And then there's Pastor Britt with me. And then the missionary steps into Crackland, and they've got guns and drugs, and the elders probably are just finding out that I was there, but that's okay. Uh, and, and so there we are. And then the missionary walks in and just goes and tells them in Portuguese, all right, y'all settle down. We're going to preach and pray. And so then like the head kingpin crack dealer just kind of gives the I don't, that's not exactly, that means something else there. But, you know, he's like, and everybody settled down, literally, and all the, all the crack dealers just sit down. And then this little about 100-pound Portuguese woman, she just starts just preaching the word to him. And not like soft, like you're a rainbow and you're a butterfly and God wants to help you. No, 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 no. It was like repent and turn from this darkness in your life of sin and just wearing them out. And then we prayed, 
And these, these people were like with their hands up all over here praying. And, and it was crazy because every crack dealer in there, they all bowed their head and closed one eye, one eye for Jesus, one eye still on the crack, you know, and they were like, it's crazy. I've never seen anything like that in my whole life. It's crazy. Then we left, we left where the crack dealers were, and we go over, we go over these little railroad tracks, and there's basically this ditch beside the railroad tracks where the crack users live. And it was 11 o'clock in the morning, and very few of them were even awake. People were high and just kind of out of their minds, and, and we were bringing food to them. This guy, what is, that, we help, that we help fund, by the way, as a church, he brings food to them a few days a week and prays for them, and he's got a recovery house, and we're trying to just help people take that step to the recovery house. And, and if you've been on a mission trip, this is why you have to go. That's why you have to go, because I know you think your life's rough, you know, but JTP traffic is nothing and you're like, ah, okay, and so there we are, and I've seen it a bunch of times, but man, what killed me is uh, some of the people we were with were playing with some of these children, and we're, we're standing out of this little house, it literally, it's cardboard and a piece of plywood, and this mom's there with a baby, and she's got these other kids, and out walks this little boy, we woke him up, and he comes walking out, and his hair's all a mess, and he's rubbing his eyes, and he's like super skinny, not like sickly skinny, just like a little thin kid. And he walks out with these big basketball shorts on. And I'm telling you what, I bet he was nine years old and he looked like the Brazilian JP. And Pastor Britt just leans over to me and says, you know what the difference between him and JP is? Where they were born. That's a fact. So maybe if the only thing you even get out of this is you understand because you even get to show up here and sit in a row and sit in the air condition that you might be a five-talent person. It ain't fair. And I hope you did your gratitude list a couple of weeks ago. If not, repent and do your gratitude list. Because, because the majority of us in the room are five talent people. And so to one he gives five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. And then the master went away, verse 16. And he who had received the five talents, he went at once, and he traded with them, and he made five talents more. Now, not for himself, but for his master. And listen, he didn't wait around. He did it at once. And do you know why he was able to risk everything that his master had given him? Because he knew his master. He knew it wasn't his. And he knew he trusted his master. And so he had faith that even if he risked it and lose it all, that because his master had entrusted it to him, he would do with those talents what his master would want him to do with those talents. Verse 17, and so also he who had the two talents, he made two talents more. Verse 18, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. You know why? Because he was afraid. Because apparently he did not know the heart of the master and he was not captivated by the heart of the master. And so his fear paralyzed him. And this is why over and over and over I tell you that the opposite of fear is not, or the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. Because here you've got two faithful people and one fearful person. And you see, what these money managers did is they knew that they would be held accountable on what they did with the money, not in regards to what was best for them, but what was best for their master because it was their master's money. Just like you would hold a money manager accountable if you had, if you had a money manager and you went to him and said, hey, man, here's some money. Go do something awesome with it. I'll be back. And then when you came back, if you said, all right, where's my money? And the guy was like, well, I've been keeping it right here in my pocket, except I have taken some out for me. You'd be like, you fool, give me back my money. Wouldn't you? You would fire them on the spot. Now, <laughs> now, be careful. Don't evaluate yourself the same way, or God might fire you from being his money manager, but we're not there yet, okay? 
And so you see this man, fear grips the one talent man. He's looking for safety and security. He is not, he's not willing to risk it on faith. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants, he came and he settles accounts with him. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more. And let me just tell you, I bet he was so excited for this meeting. When he got, when, when somebody texted him and was like, hey, the money manager's back or the master's back, I bet he was like, ooh, does he want to meet with me? I mean, can you imagine how he felt when, the door, when he came knocking on the door? Hey, hey, the master's back. He's like, yes. Hey, have you ever done that? You ever done a great job with the bosses out and when he gets back? You're just in his office. How was your trip? <laughs> oh, you want to talk about last week a little bit? Because look what I did, you know? That's, that's, that's the feeling that this guy probably has. And so <clears throat> here's what he says. He says, master, you delivered to me five talents. And then the ESV says, here I have made five talents more. What it really means is like, here you go. Here you go. I have, I, you gave me five, I made five more. Here you go. In other words, this was not for me, but this was for you. And his master said to him, well done, good, and here it is, faithful servant. You see, faith produces action. Faith is willing to take the risk because you don't have faith in yourself. You have faith in the one that has provided you with this stuff. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. By the way, let me just tell you this. This is a five-talent church. There were 450,000 Protestant churches in America. We're the third fastest growing one. Not by anything that we have done, but just because for whatever reason, when God was handing out talents in churches, he went, 1122, take five. Let me tell you what I refuse to do as a pastor of this thing. Get it and be like, where's the hole? No way. Heck no. Even if we lose it all, whatever, it ain't ours to start with. This is a five-talent church. On the day he returns, 1122, better step up and be like, where's that? Let's talk about what we've been doing for a minute and what he has been doing through us. So that's what happens to the five-talent guy. Verse 22, and he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents, and here I have made two talents more. Verse 23, guess what he says? The exact same thing, word for word, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, in God's economy, God does not compare. It's also why you should never, ever compare. When you compare, you always lose. If you're a two-talent person and you compare yourself to the five-talent person, it leads to condemnation, and therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't look at the five-talent guy and be like, man, if God really loved me, I'd be like this. So you'll lose if you compare up. And if you compare down, and if you're like, well, at least I ain't a one-talent cat over there digging a hole, all right? Then that leads to pride also not the gospel. God does not compare. He just compares you to the you he created you to be. That's all he wants from you, is he wants you filled with the Holy Spirit to be the you that he has called you to be. And so Jesus gives the exact same reward for that guy. It's because it's based on, it's not based on amount, it's based on stewardship. And so 24, it says, he also who had received the one talent came forward. Now, if this is a movie, this is where the soundtrack changes. Dun, dun, dun. And in him was this guy, one talent guy. And he's like, Master, I knew you'd be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And here's the key so I was afraid. Folks, this is a parable about faith in Jesus. So you have some faithful people and you've got a fearful man. And the, this guy that's full of fear, it, it paralyzed him. And the guys that were, that were faithful in who the master is, they were the ones that were able to risk it all. So I would ask you this, 
in your own financial situation, what word describes you? Faithful or fearful? Faithful or fearful? And he goes on, he says, so I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Now you see, I've told you this a million times, that the opposite of faith is not doubt. If you've got doubts, you could make a really great disciple. Pick up your doubts and by faith follow after Jesus. One day, all your questions will be answered. It'll be when you see him face to face. Everything will be made clear. Until then, there'll be a whole bunch of stuff that you don't understand. You know why? Because you, you're not God. You don't even have, we don't even have the capability to understand. So by faith, pick up your doubts, pick up your questions, pick up all your, your unanswered everything, your unanswered prayers, and why didn't you, and why did you, and follow after Jesus by faith. If you've got doubts, you can make a really great disciple. But the opposite of faith, is fear. It's when you're paralyzed. Now, I had a very well-meaning, really smart, probably way smarter than I am, 1122er, tell me that the opposite of faith isn't fear, it's self-reliance. And you can think that. You can be wrong. That's fine. You're American. You can, whatever you want. The, but the, here, here's where I would say, no, no, no. But self-reliance is just misplaced faith. Self-reliance is I have a whole lot of faith. I'm just not putting it in you. I'm putting it in me. And this is a part of the one-talent problem here. Because what did he say? He said, I've got this. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to dig a hole, and I'm going to hide it, and I'm going to search after safety and security instead of, by faith, stepping out into what the master has for me. Now, I think when you're in church and you're reading this, I think you would say, now, who would do that? If the master came up to you and gave you a talent, which would be, I think it's like $260,000. If he would have just give you this and say, hey, I'm going to be back and check on you, who would go and hide it? You know what I found out this week? Do you know that last year, in 2014, Americans spent $27 billion on storage unit rentals? That doesn't include the stuff in the storage unit. That's just the monthly rent to cover a place to put that stuff. Now, quit elbowing your husband. I'm like, I told you we should sell that stuff. No, 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 whatever. And I know, I know there's probably a very, very valid reason that you need a climate-controlled storage unit to, you know, you haven't even seen the stuff since the Bush administration, but that's okay, don't worry about it. But the reality is, you know what most Americans are doing? We're digging holes. We're digging holes, and we're hiding stuff because we think that's where our security is. It's just true. So even, even if everything in these storage units was just worth a dollar, it'd be 12 times $27 billion that maybe we could unleash for the kingdom of God. It's just true. Or you know what? You know where some of you dig holes and put, your, and, and put it to hide it? It's in a savings account or a money market. And honestly, you should save for the future. You should bless your family. All that is absolutely true. But some of you have fallen in love with a number on a computer screen that you're never, ever going to touch. And the reality, here, here's the idolatry. If you think that thing brings you joy or that thing brings you safety and security... How many VH1 behind the musics do we have to watch to figure out that cash and prizes do not provide life? And so, check yourself, me included, that we have these unhealthy trusts in a bunch of stuff. And his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. It's interesting that Jesus calls him lazy or slothful. Because from our perspective, he's the busiest guy of the three. The first two go just go to Wall Street. Wall Street and be like, hey, invest this, buy, sell, cha-ching, they make it. This guy gets after it. I mean, you know, he didn't put a talent, he didn't put $250,000 on a debit card. He put it, he gave it to him in silver. 
I, that, if you're going to dig a hole to put that much money away, that's a big old hole. It's probably the size of this room. You've got to go find a place, dig up a hole, put all the money there. What? He's coming back. You've got to undig the hole. I don't know how many wheelbarrow loads. If you're watching this dude, you're like, that dude is busy. But Jesus would say being busy about the wrong things equals being slothful about the kingdom of God. And there's a whole lot of us that are really, really, really busy trying to build our own little kingdoms instead of pressing in by faith to what God is calling us to do. And so the master says, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. And then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. See, all you bankers out there are like, amen, read the Bible, people, all right? And at, at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. I mean, I, here's a question that could change your whole world. If you were God, would you give you more money? Based on what you've been doing with God's money, if you were God, would you give you more of God's money? Or would you take it from him and give it to somebody else that has been investing it in a way that would be God-honoring? Verse 29, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now here's what's important. The reason he is cast into the utter darkness is not because of what he did with the money. What he did with the money is evidence that he did not know the master. And when you don't know the master, you act like it. And that's what separates you eternally from the master. You never, never, never get those things confused. So the question I would ask you is this. If God gave you $1,000 right now, what would you think you'd do with it? I mean, on the way out today, let's just say Jesus. We had him come in, you know, special appearance. And he was standing at the front. Hey, glad you're here. See you next week. And he gave every person in here on the way out 1000 bucks. Hey, this is for me. I want you to do something awesome with it. What would you do? The reality is, every thousands of dollars that you have already, he's given to you. That, that is not a hypothetical. It actually already happens every two weeks or however you get paid. It happens all the time. And don't miss the points of the parable. Parable number one is don't miss the party. Meet him. Surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, parable number two, the way that you manage all the talents, the time, the resources, the finances that he entrusts to you, it will all change. It will be fueled by faith and not fear. And then the third parable is, and you won't just build for yourself your own kingdom, but whatever you do to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do unto me. Now, I think, I could be wrong, but I think, I think there's a couple other places in the scriptures where Jesus talks specifically about all of your finances. You see, last week we talked about what, what tithing means. That tithing is the first ten or the first fruit. And for the large majority of us, the overwhelming majority of us, God is calling us to bring first and best. But there's a few times in the scripture where Jesus specifically talks about all, about 100%, not just 10%. One of the places is, uh, is in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. And some of you, if you've been around Bible study, you know this one. This is, uh, this is the widow's might. It says, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts in an offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, or a widow's might in the King James. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, but in all she had to live on. You see, what Jesus is saying is this is about faith, not just finances. 
See, I actually had somebody give me a widow's mite. This is a copper coin that's a couple thousand years old that I just have in my pocket now because that's how spiritual I am, all right? And so there it is. You think God needs this? No, no. If he wanted your money, he could just squish you right now. You'd be a greasy spot. He'd take whatever he wants. But what he wants is our heart. And Jesus looks at this woman and says, like, look, this woman's all in. This woman is declaring that, that he is before all things. That's why the number one goal in this for us is 100% involvement. And that doesn't just mean 100% of our people will, will, will participate, but also that you would participate at 100% level, that we would hold nothing back in every area of our life. The other place that Jesus talks about all is on the other end of the spectrum. This woman was poor. He also talks to a rich guy. Verse, uh, it's Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. Since as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, good teacher. Now, let me just tell you what this means in this context. This was a good front row sitting, 1122-er, on serve staff, sings with his eyes closed, hands up, go, does everything the church asked him to do. That, that's who this is. This isn't some outwardly rebellious, you know, uh, kind of egomaniac. This is a person that if you looked at him in our context, you'd say, yeah, yeah, this is, this is a good churchman right here. And he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the rich young man says to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So, He's lying because nobody can do that. But that's all right. He broke the one on lying. But he meant to tell the truth, all right? So here's what this means. That this guy, the rich young ruler, in regards to finances, has been, a, has been a legalistic tither since he can remember. And in the Old Testament, the tithe wasn't just 10% of your income. You had to tithe on what's in your pantry. You had to give 10% of your ketchup every week, 10% of your mustard, literally, and all these kind of spices that I don't know what they are. That, that's what it means. It's about 25%. And here's what he's saying. I have been a legalistic tither since my youth. Are you not impressed? In other words, I have paid my God tax out of duty every week of my life, which means probably, if he really is rich, that every week, bottom line, he is bringing in exceedingly more than the widow. You see, so this is not about just amounts and numbers and that sort of stuff. He's a legalistic 10 percenter every week. Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him, loved him, did not condemn him. Jesus looks at this man with the same kind of love that he looks at the poor and the broken, and he looks at them both, and he loves them because they both need Jesus. See, what was crazy about when Britt and I went to Crackland, some of the worst conditions I've ever seen, within 60 minutes, we are sitting in one of the finest Italian restaurants I've ever been in in my life. We were sitting there, and I'm telling you, I, I ate, and praise God, right? But here's the thing. As I'm sitting there eating my spaghetti or whatever, I remember looking around at all these folks in Rio thinking they need Jesus just as bad, just as bad. And maybe, and maybe um, they're less likely to see him because they put all their hope in the comforts of this world. You see, here's why I don't mind talking about money to you, because I love you too much to ignore it. To ignore it and just give you some sermon that makes like cotton candy, but ooh, that tastes good, and it's, I'm going to die if that's all I eat my whole life. And then you go get in your car and just drive back into your neighborhood 
and think that something doesn't need to change in all of our lives, it would not be love for you. It would be love for me and making sure that I, I really like what you think about me more than me trusting the Word of God. And so Jesus loves this man enough to say, to him, say this to him. He says, you lack one thing. One, in other words, hey, rich young ruler, your whole life is prioritized right except because you're missing the one thing that matters most, then your whole life is out of order. Jesus is essentially saying what we said last week, that God is first and God doesn't do leftovers. So he says, you lack one thing. So go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You see, the reality is, is when, when your possessions begin to possess you, it leads to great sorrow. The reason is because you were not created to be a citizen of this world. Our citizenship is of another kingdom. And when you act like this is forever, there will always be this angst inside of you. That's why, that's why Rockefeller, when he was asked how much money is enough, his answer was more, which is an impossible answer. Verse 23 and Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's hard to get to heaven from Jacksonville. It really is. It really is hard to get to heaven from Jacksonville. And I know that none of us think that we have wealth, but again, on a global scale, we are incredibly blessed. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me tell you what most commentators do with this verse at this point. That you've got to make it say something that it does not mean so that all of us feel better about us. Here's the deal. It's impossible for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. I'm going to show you. Okay, I got some camels. And I got a needle. I've tried all week. It just won't go. Here's what Jesus is saying. That's impossible. And it's impossible for rich people to get in heaven. Here's what he's saying. If you are relying on your riches, it's impossible. If you are relying on you in any arena of your life, it's impossible. The only way that it's possible is if you were relying on the death and resurrection of Jesus. That when he said, it is finished, then it counted for you. This will never happen. It will take an eternal miracle for this to happen. Here, if you can give these back to Pastor Ben, I'd appreciate it. Okay, thanks. <laughs> and they are exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, then who can be saved? Which is, that's a good question. Then who can be saved? On our own, nobody. But Jesus looked at him and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. In other words, everyone who has surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ will be saved. Anybody that is the king of their own life and whatever that kingdom looks like, whether it's wealth or pleasure or whatever, comfort or whatever it is, I'm going to do this my way. If you are a, the Lord of your own life, then you will not be saved. I want you to, I, I put those, those two events side by side so you can see this is not about bottom line. This is about faith, not just finances. If you'll um, open up in your in your booklet, I think it's page 17, yeah, page 17, I'd love for you to spend some time this afternoon looking through this generosity journey, this generosity journey, because here's the thing, the church of 1122 is a movement, a movement for all people, 
And so we're not all in the same place on this generosity journey. Some of you are at the very beginning of the road. Praise God, welcome, we built this place for you. Some of you are, are incredibly generous and it's evidence in your, in your finances and your generosity. And you're surrendered like crazy. Sweet, we built this place for you so that you could grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, in order to be a follower of Jesus, that means you've got to keep taking steps. The moment you quit taking steps, you cease to be a follower of Jesus. And so there are some of you here, and the first step that you need to take is to be an initial giver. That you've never trusted God with what he has entrusted you. And in this season, for the very first time, you're going to be like, all right, here we go. And not only are you going to trust God, but you're going to trust the leadership that he put in place here for the very first time. And then some of you have done that occasionally. You kind of tip God. Like if you have to have a little leftover change in your pocket from the bricks last night, you're like, oh, sweet, I'm going to give a little bit of that, all right? And then some of you need to begin to take a step from there to a consistent giver. That you're going to pick some percentage and you're going to make it a priority first. The first thing that you're going to do in the week is you're going to bring back to God consistently as a part of your worship. Some of you have been doing that for a long time and it's time for you to take a step to be an intentional giver. And intentional givers are the kind of folks that begin to look at their whole finances and think things like, how come I'm giving more to Verizon and Comcast than I'm investing into the advancement of the kingdom of God? And you need to begin to wrestle through percentage and what percentage are you investing into the kingdom of God and then there's some you've been doing that for a long time a really long time in fact you've been given you've been tithing you've been giving 10 percent since you uh you know milk cows back in the early 1900s praise God but now it's time if you're not careful you could be the rich young ruler and you can instead of giving in a way that actually stretches you and requires faith you can just do it consistently and comfortably and God is not looking for your comfort. He is not. And so there are some of you that need to take a step into being a sacrificial giver and ask the question, am I giving in a way that changes me? God, are you actually first or am I just checking off the God tax? And then there are some of you, you've been doing that. You've been stretching yourself every time you get an opportunity and it's time for you to step up and be a lifetime giver. There are some men and women in this church that have, that have done exceedingly well financially and they have decided we are capping our income at this and everything over and above we are investing into the kingdom of God. They no longer ask how much do I need to give. They ask how, how much can I keep so that every bit of the rest goes for eternal purposes. You see, I want you to begin praying like crazy over that. Praying like crazy. And, and, and here's why. You please, please understand this. This is not a journey to heaven. This is not like, if I do these things, then I'm going to make it to heaven. It's more like, if the trajectory of my life is heaven because I've surrendered my life to the Lordship of Christ, then it's evidenced by the journey that I'm on. And please, 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 don't miss that. Here's the point. That God has entrusted you and me with time, talent, and treasure. And what you do with those time, talents, and treasures, it declares what you believe about God famous pastor named Francis Chan says it this way. He says, everything we do will bring either reward or regret. Like every dollar you spend will either bring reward or regret. It'll be about building our kingdom or building his. He, he shares this incredible illustration that I'm going to steal, and it's this, okay? Imagine this rope. All right, this rope's like 50 feet long or something, and, and it, doesn't, it, it ends at the stage over there. But imagine it didn't end at the stage. Imagine it went all the way around the room and went to Bay Meadows and touched stone and then came all the way back here and then went on forever and ever and ever into eternity that this rope represented a timeline of your life. 
And it just went on forever and ever and ever. And this little red part here on the end, this represented our time here on earth in comparison to eternity. Because the reality is all of us are going to live forever somewhere. Now, here's the problem. Most of us live like this is all that matters. The little, the little red part over here that represents our days here on earth. And whether you get 17 years or 117 years, compared to 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've had no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It's a little tiny bit of time. And what's crazy about God's economy is the way we live in this little part determines how we live in all the rest of this. And here's what most of us do. Most of us, we, we, this is all we think about. You're like, man, when I get to this part, okay, I'm going to tell you what, but I'm going to study, and I'm going to work, and I'm going to get a job, and then I'm going to work, 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 and I'm going to save, 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 save. So when I get to right here, woo, it's going to be awesome. Like 20 years of vacation right there, golf and seashells and RV parks. And I mean, this, this right here. And if this is true, I would look at you and be like, you know how dumb that is? That's really dumb because the opposite is um, I've had some well-meaning friends very successful people come to me as, they've, as we've talked through what Gretchen and I are going to do in this Before All Things initiative. And, and they're like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. But if, you, but if you go in at that level here, you might mess up here. And I'm like, I don't care about here. I'm about this over here. I want all of this. This is what I'm living for. I'm not living all the days of my life just for this little red part right there. You know how dumb that is? That's dumb. Don't be dumb. Invest, invest, invest during this little part so that all of this, you know what you can hear? Well done, good and faithful servant, because you have been faithful with a little. I'm going to entrust you with much. Now, there are some 1122ers that are actually living this out. I want you to meet them by watching this video. Hi, I'm Star Russell. I'm Jessica Russell. And we've been coming to 1122 for five years. We started it at Beach United. So we choose to give our time and our resources to 1122 because it's our, it's our family. And we believe that uh, God is working in this place. We want to be part of that movement and part of that, and part of that support structure. For a long time, we didn't give. We were, we were, we came on the weekends. We loved it. We every week I would leave and just be in awe of the experience. But we just, for whatever reason, we hadn't taken that step and put our resources forward. It was partly due to education and knowledge, and part of a partly due to our heart. We were budgeting on us and what we thought we needed and what we thought we needed to give our children and each other. We weren't putting any of those resources first. We would talk a lot about you know, giving first and, and tithing first. And one day, Jessica, we were, had just discussed it and I said, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll put it off until tomorrow. And Jessica got up and left the room and I didn't know anything about it. And uh, she came back and she said, we gave. Uh, I signed online and gave. And, and I, was, I was like, what? What did you, what did you do? How much? And, uh, but once it was done, the, the, the pressure of that first act was relieving, it was relieved. I think for a long time, we thought we were doing things right. We, uh, you know, we worked hard, made good money, we gave a little bit, we, we spent a lot. And I think I thought I was giving my family what they needed. 
um, and more of it. We really wanted for nothing. Then recently, um, we started hearing stories about families that were uh, changing the way they lived. They were changing their trajectory and hearing these stories of families that were taking bold moves to, to change their life for God and for others and to be more generous. And they had to do that by, you know, changing the way they spend their money and who they give the money to first. And so Jessica uh, was very fired up um, to make some changes in her life. And I, at first I was on board too. I was excited. She was, she was telling these stories to me and re reciting the stories that were very inspiring. And then until she said, we need to sell our house. I said, what, you know, our, this, this house? Uh, nope, uh, not, not gonna happen. And I, I got angry and very defensive. And it was our dream house. We, it was, we had just been in it about two years. We built a house. Built we it. built a dream house three years ago, yeah. and it was you know, we built it exactly for our family and for our needs. And I planned to, to die in it, and to leave it to me seemed like a big sacrifice. Uh, so I instantly went into accounting mode. How do we do it without making that change? How do I manage this issue, um, but still not turn away from what I thought God was calling me to do and calling Jessica to do? But I was still trying to manage the home and manage this outcome. So eventually we uh, seek counsel, spoke to the church, um, spoke to friends, started going through Financial Peace University, getting our budget in line, and we agreed to, to sell the house and, and, and do something differently to get off the cul-de-sac of normality. But I wasn't really in it. My heart wasn't in it, in it. I had agreed to do it. I knew it was the right thing to do, but I was still very, very resistant. So as I was working through the to-do list on the house, uh, and as I prayed nightly and, and continued to, to talk to Jessica about my feelings, I was able to eventually surrender, get on board with God's plan. And I think that was a pivotal point and moved my heart forward toward, towards whatever God has planned for us next. I think this summer has really been a journey for us and a lesson for me in um, trusting God. Um, because I, I used to hear that and people would say that and I'd say okay okay but I really had to put it into practice this summer because I came home you know with the idea to sell the house and I was like ready to ninja kick things into action let's go you know Star had been praying for years for me to hear God's voice and I finally did <laughs> <laughs> I think we were excited about the Before All Things initiative just to continue to see God move in Jacksonville. The amount of growth we've seen at this church and uh, the, the life change we've seen in this church with our friends and our, and, our, and our family has been amazing. And I think as we continue to align our church to put God first, uh, we'll continue to represent God to our neighbors and to continue to uh, inspire the gospel across the state. I'm Star. I'm Jessica. And he, he is, is before, before all things. things. Amen. Hey, and here, <laughs> I can see it already. You're like, hey, you saying I got to sell my house? I'm not your Holy Spirit. I didn't tell them to sell their house. Never talked to them about it. All I need you to do is whatever it is that Jesus tells you to do. To go before the Lord and say, Lord, what does it look like for you to be before all things in my life? And then do what he says. Because what I don't want you to do is waste your life. I'm going to close with this. What a, what a life well lived can do. The, um, 
kind of the spiritual patriarch in our family is Gretchen's grandfather. And uh, he was in ministry. He, he was a full-time pastor his entire adult life. He grew up in the Northeast, and when he was, he's the oldest of, of some kids, and he was in line to take over the family business, which was the Simpson Spring Bottle Company. It's the oldest bottling company in the country, and it turned out to be very, very lucrative. But the problem was, is about the time that he was in line to take that over, he met Jesus, surrendered his life to the Lord, and then felt like God was calling him to go into ministry. So he literally walked away from cash and prizes here on earth to go into ministry, and he never, he never led a big church like this. In fact, at first, what he wanted to do is he wanted to be a missions pilot. So he went to pilot school to be able to fly missionaries into unreached people group. He gets there, and he was colorblind, so they wouldn't let him be a pilot, so he goes in to be a pastor. And then, um, because the churches that he worked at, uh, he couldn't sustain a family on, he was bivocational, so he's also a painter, which I always wondered how good did that go, because he was colorblind, too, so, you know, <laughs> good luck. So when Gretchen and I first met, her family, you know, they weren't really into me that much, but I knew, give them time, you know, what's not to love, I'd be okay, but at first, it was a little, you know, touch and go. And so, the first time I ever really met him was at an Easter lunch, and uh, we all went to church together, to the church that Gretchen grew up in, and she was his pastor growing up, and all these things, and we're sitting there at lunch, and you, you know when you first meet the parents how awkward and weird that is, and you're trying to be awesome, and you know, all of that, and so I'm sitting right next to him, and I was looking forward to it, because he had 40, 50 years of ministry experience, and, and I remember uh, one of Gretchen's cousins comes walking in the door, and she's all pierced, and crazy different color hair, and he just says, well, here comes the Easter egg, you know, and that's the kind of... Like, he was at that age where he thought, I don't care. I'm saying what I want. I'm old. Yeah, that's what he is. And so, it's pretty awesome. Uh, a year or so later, he did our wedding. He married us. And then three weeks later, he went to the hospital, and he never came out. And what's crazy is this man had such an intense relationship with the Lord. He knew. I don't know. Somehow, he knew going in because he, when he went in for this routine surgery, he put all of his assets in his wife's name so, and had everything set up so just in case, just in case he didn't make it out. And so then Gretchen's family asked me to be a part of the funeral, which is crazy. You know, I was brand new in the family, still didn't really know my place. I mean, we're just, we're just in the family for a couple of months at that point. And so one of the things that was interesting as we pull up to the church to do his funeral, and he was, he was a well-loved man, but this is a really small church in a really great but really small town. And there were exponentially more cars there than really should be. And so um, as I'm pulling up, I'm, I'm looking at the license plates of all of these cars, and it's not just Virginia where we were, and it's not just like, you know, Boston and in the Northeast where he's from. There are license plates from Florida and Ohio and Pennsylvania and Colorado and literally coast to coast and all over the place. And the reason is because when, when Lloyd White, that's his name, after he had pastored the, the church that Gretchen grew up in for a bunch of years, and he was moving to that area, that time in his life when people were saying, you know what, you've worked hard, you, you, you've put money away, you've done those kind of things, now's the time to retire. He would tell me all the time, retirement is not a biblical concept. Now, it's no problem to move from one vocation to another for the kingdom of God. And so instead of just getting an RV and playing golf and collecting seashells, instead, he went and he and his wife, Gretchen's grandparents, they were the... They were the house parents for the Patrick Henry Boys Home. And so for 11 years, they poured their lives. After four decades of pastoring churches, they poured their lives into the lives of these young men, troubled men that did not have a home to go to. Now, this isn't like they were hanging out with like the gifted and talented squad, right? There's a reason that these boys were there because they, they, nobody wanted them. 
and Gretchen's grandparents said, we'll take them. And they went and lived there on the property, invested in them. And so now, it's 25 years later, and all these boys have grown up into men with their own families. And I am standing there at the graveside. I'm about six feet away from Gretchen's grandfather, Pastor Lloyd White. And there's a box with his body. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking exactly what you think when you go to a funeral. I wonder what people are going to say about me when this is my turn. And I'm, and I'm one year out of seminary, and he's been doing this for four or five decades. And right in front of me walks this man about my age. And he had this crazy red hair. I mean like Ronald McDonald crazy red hair, all right? And then he's got his son in his hand, and I know it's his son because he's got the same red head. I thought, well, there you go. Okay, that makes sense. This guy lives in Ohio now. And he leans over to his little boy. And I'm talking about I am this far away. And he leans over to his little boy, and he says, the reason that I get to be your daddy is because when I did not have one, that man was my daddy. And in that moment, I decided that is how I will spend the rest of my days. Not to build a kingdom for me, but I will pour myself out for the one that poured himself out for me that God may do whatever he wants to do with me in my life because I am a blank check, God. Spend me as you will, as you will. And there is no greater joy in life than living that kind of life. So what about you? That's what this journey is all about. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you sent your Son not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And God, for those of us who have been ransomed, God, may we respond in kind. May we pour ourselves out that you would use us. God, we thank you that we are a five-talent church. And by faith, God, may we go for it, not for the name of this church. It is not about 1122. It is only about Jesus. God, may we make much of you and your name. And God, as we invest everything we have in eternity, God, we thank you that even on this side of heaven, God, that's what this life is all about. So God, may none of us waste our life. May we invest everything that you've given us for your glory and in so doing that, really find joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, we respond. We're going to respond by singing before all things. We're going to respond by bringing our tithes and offerings, our first and best. And some of you need to grab your commitment card because you've got all this anxiety going on right now. And the Bible says, be anxious for nothing. But in fear and supplication, make your request known to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Why don't you come to the altar and pray? Let us respond.